one. And welcome everybody to another Smart Money Circle show. I'm Adam Sarhan. With me today is Fadi Bakhtar, who's a president and chief commercial officer at Petropharma. Ticker symbol is PTPI. Fadi, thank you so much for taking the time and welcome to the Smart Money Show. Great to be with you, Adam. Thank you for having me on the show. So we'd like to start by telling, uh, can you tell us your story and how you got to where you are today, please? Yeah, it's it's been a over two decade journey. It's funny because I started my career interested in international relations, possibly the foreign service or something to the like, and uh, went and did military intelligence for a little bit, realized that we were going to have to do some major hardship travel. So I'm, uh, I'm, I'm not proud of the man I had to be, but I had to be there for my family. We got pregnant with my first daughter. Congratulations. Thank you very much. <laughs> Looked for a domestic run, someplace where I could be close to home and still get my same dynamic human interaction, engagement, communicational, you know, adventures, uh, going and somebody introduced me to the pharmaceutical industry. Nice. And the rest is history. I started. I was born and raised, essentially, uh, in big pharma. So the Mercs of the world, the Novartises, the Glaxos of the world, loved it. Loved it. Saw some major enterprises, tremendously innovative pharmaceuticals. Helped launch Advair long ago for asthma, uh, and uh, and the like. And and just went on to hospital, hospital grade antibiotics. Fell in love with the innovation of pharmaceutical treatments. Nice. And then, uh, yeah, debuted into commercial operations and corporate development with Auxilium Pharmaceuticals, which we then sold to Endo for $2.6 billion back in 2014, I believe it was. Uh, from Endo, that's it. I, once I started with Auxilium, I was, I was forever romanced by small biotech. Loved it. Loved it. Lean, nimble, innovative, fast moving, you know, pivot, pivot and, and run. Uh, then when... So from Auxilium to Endo to Adapt Pharmaceuticals with Narcan nasal spray. That was an exciting story because that was this is right the epicenter of the opioid crisis. Dove into CDC numbers and data and realized, unfortunately, it was the blue-collar, white-collar worker, the American, the average American that was dying, roughly 40 to 50,000 deaths per year because of opioid overdose. Mm -hmm. So Narcan nasal spray, naloxone, the generic form had been available for over 40 years. This is something different. This was about a public movement. Mm -hmm. This was about us taking the innovation behind the pharmaceuticals, but having it marry and meet a tremendous current market dynamic of deficiency. Mm -hmm. We were able to build that, convince physicians that it was worth their while to co-prescribe it alongside pain medications, found tremendous policy support from both state and federal governments. I built that business and sold it to Emergent Biosolutions for three quarters of a billion. And the romance continues. Wow. Uh, I I yeah. It's, it's like, uh, it's like, it's like, you don't know what you're going to stumble across, but when you do and you find the right sweet spot, you, you just forever changed. Um, found Metuchen. Metuchen is the current company Petros in private form before it became public. Okay. Metuchen had, had Stendra which is a prescription grade ED medication. I invite everybody to go to standard.com, look at the important safety information, be familiar with the product in general. It is in market today and available by prescription today. Sorry, how do you spell that website? Cause you went fast. Yeah, so it's stendra.com. It's as in Sam, T as in Tom, R-E-N-D-R-A.com. Thank you. You got it. Uh, as we worked through the life cycle of that product, we looked in the marketplace and realized there are no prescription-grade erectile dysfunction medications available over-the-counter today. Couple that with the fact that a recent study, uh, recent 2017-2018, uh, 
This is two decades after Viagra was launched. Sendra is a competitor to Viagra and Cialis. Two decades after this class of medication has been available on market, it has been indicated that only 25% of men suffering from erectile dysfunction in this country have actually sought prescription therapy. Oh, wow. It's crazy. Wow. So then we started to think, what is it? What is it that's causing this tremendous hurdle? The ego? <laughs> ego I guess. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And there's there's some justifiable stigma and embarrassment, but yes, it is fundamentally our ego. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that that's a major hurdle. We looked into the archives of some Viagra marketers who were a part of the initial Viagra launch. And to my surprise, when I read those, so those, those sort of diary entries that are publicly available, they were disappointed. Although it was a billion dollar asset generating tremendous returns, they were expecting far more as they should. Got it. 30 million men suffer from erectile dysfunction in this country. Mm-hmm. You think of the, the use, you may get a million prescriptions a month. And among those million, you've got about half of half of them that are refills. Mm-hmm. So you're still not tapping into the massive market. So they were disappointed. Mm-hmm. So all that to say, it led us to, we need to try to unhinder this, this class of medication by way of our flagship pharmaceutical and see if we could be the ones to switch it from prescription to OTC. Hence, our public market debut from Metuchen Pharmaceuticals, which still is a subsidiary to Petros Pharmaceuticals, which is the public company uh, available on market today. We've been so since 2020, and we've been on the OTC transition development pathway with the FDA since about earnestly since 2021. Wow. I love that. So you're taking drugs, specifically ED drugs, but you're taking drugs that are typically needed for prescription, helping them go over the counter so people can buy them without the embarrassment of going to the doctor and say, I have this problem or whatever the case may be, and just make it more accessible. That's right. That's right. A key fundamental insertion there. So there, there've been about 106 switches since 1976, prescription to over the counter switches. The majority of them are in the antihistamine space, the antifungal space, topical, things that are relatively transient, relatively low adverse event risk and profile. So this class of medication will not suit. It will not fit that profile. So we're talking about a new age of prescription to OTC switches. And that's important because I'm going to tell you one of the key features to our company is the platform that we're looking to build is going to be applicable to this difficult class of medication, but could be applicable to many other nuanced, I call it nuanced, complicated prescription-grade ED medications that have never been before thought of over-the-counter, but that may now be considered over-the-counter based on what we're able to develop in the technology intermediary in this in this transition space. So very quick uh, points to keep in mind. Viagra has tried Pfizer, behemoth Pfizer, tried and they have not been able to switch Viagra to over-the-counter here in the U.S. They were able to do so in the U.K., but not here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. They have since, in terms of the public eye, they seem to have uh, sunsetted that program, to the best of our knowledge. Cialis, on the other hand, was licensed by Sanofi from Lilly, Eli Lilly, back in 2014. They've been trying to switch Cialis to over-the-counter since. Oh, wow. They haven't been able to. So... The challenge at hand is to develop the right technology utility that helps a consumer appropriately self-select without a prescription, without a physician intermediary. And that is our game. That is our promise. And if we're able to achieve it, we have confidence. We're bullish on the prospects of applying it to future nuanced prescription-grade medication that are ideal candidates for over-the-counter, hence the self-care market, which we'll talk about during our discussion as well. 
I love that. So you're not only using it for one specific classification, you want to just go as wide as you can and just take as many of these, I guess, legacy uh, prescription medications and move them to over-the-counter, if I'm understanding you properly. Is that correct? That's right. That's right. Good term, legacy candidates. That's right. Love it. Okay, beautiful. So we spoke about you, spoke about the company a little bit, but let's just dive in a little bit more into the company. Someone who doesn't know Petra and someone who's interested in learning more, can you just give us high level what the company not just does, but I want to know more about the competitive advantages as well. So I know you, you did kind of discuss that, but if you don't mind giving us just an overview about that, please. Absolutely. I think one of the key competitive advantages in this marketplace and perhaps even in this class is to be small, lean, and nimble. Mm-hmm. Much of what we do is governed, much if not all of what we do is governed by the FDA. It's governed by public market. It's covered. It's governed by a shareholder. Uh, so it's difficult if you're a big company to make moves quickly and and with value-based risks and, and, and moving quickly makes all the difference in the world. So we are lean, nimble, very, very ambitious, very excited about what, what's, what's ahead of us. So we, we can move very, very quickly. That's one of our probably most profound competitive advantages. Our second is we have the only patent-protected, branded, prescription-grade erectile dysfunction product on the market. So Viagra has lost patents, Cialis has lost patent, Levitra has lost patent. We're the last standing patent protected product. The reason why that's valuable is we have the new drug application that was behind this, our submission many years ago in 2000, I think 12. Having that NDA, it makes us be able to leverage hundreds, if not thousands of patients that have already been tested and tried in clinical studies for this product. We could leverage all that clinical data as we pursue over-the-counter, if a generic entrant wanted to come to market, they would either have to they would have to conduct their own studies and submit their own NDA or, or be approved. Even as an abbreviated new drug application, they would have to prove the clinical efficacy of that product. We have the benefit of having the NDA. We are the NDA holders, mm-hmm. which essentially gives us the right to be the first movers in over-the-counter. That is a tremendous competitive uh, feature yeah. that... That yeah. other exactly that they don't have Sanofi today with Cialis is the only other active brand that's looking to switch to over the counter, but they are essentially the only other competitor in this marketplace today. Got it. So I love that. By the way, thank you for sharing. The let's talk about risk. So by the way, thank you for your service. Number one, I didn't know that about you until you mentioned it now. So I always like to thank you for your service. Thank you. And then second is let's talk about risk in business. And you moved into this biotech. I love the fact that you're in small biotech. It's dear to my heart. I love the mission that all biotechs are good, help humanity, help people live longer, live better lives, so on and so forth. So I want to see, you know, I'm the cheerleader. I want to see them succeed. Uh, how do you handle risk? And what are some mistakes you see people make with respect to risk management, please? Yeah. So I think in my mind, there are various tiers of risk. There's the kind of risk that risks your your you know your your, your credibility. It risks your face. Basically, you, you take action. You think it's the best, but you're concerned. The risk is, well, I lose credibility if I can't achieve this. That's one tier of risk that I think sometimes is worth taking, especially when you're trying to disrupt a marketplace that's been in status quo and stagnation for too long. There's that level of risk, and I would say that I think we're we're probably more um, we're, we're we're sort of tolerant of that risk because we're small, we're lean, we're, we're nimble. The only thing we have to gain is to be the first mover in the space. We don't have a big name to protect essentially. So we're hungry to earn the credibility for that name. And sometimes that requires us to make leaps forward and take the risks that the, the, the big credible names today in marketplace don't want to disrupt. Um, the other big risk is FDA 
and regulatory based risks. Those are risks that you never want to cross. You never want to, uh, you never want to offend. Right. So that, that we do not compromise. I think that is, we, we hold that as sort of as the pinnacle risk profile that we do not, we do not touch everything in between is measured. What is the return potential and what is, what is the gain potential and what is the likelihood it's going to happen? And being lean and nimble, we can, we can, we have, we have a, a strong sense of, um, ambition as to what we're willing to appetite, what we're not willing to appetite. And our shareholders back us. They yeah, want us they want to see us this so so just to make sure i understand what you're saying here you're saying there's different levels of risks in your mind there's big medium and small just to simplify it and it's important to understand before you make a decision and or i.e take the risk that it's almost like a trade there's a level of risk and a level of return and then the probability of that outcome occurring so when you make a decision before you even make that decision a you want to see where does it fall in the risk profile or, or you know high medium or small or big small large whatever you want to say and then you want to see the probability and then measure the risk and measure the potential reward. Is that a good way of summarizing well, what you said? Well said, exactly. And I'll give you a quick example. I think even when you work with the FDA, please, we are always taking our protocols and our, our strategic study development to the FDA before we take action. If we hit a moment or a point where the FDA sometimes could be very busy, sometimes <laughs> they may not be able to get us into a meeting. We'll assess what it would it take if we if we did this one quick small study with limited feedback from the FDA. What's the risk of hearing back from them later? Those are the kinds of risks that we're willing to appetite and rank and score and see. This is something that, especially with our experience, and we have a team that has been around this space for a very, very long time. So sometimes they are also gap fills to Got help it. us assess risk. So yes, we we have like like you said, we have a nice range of appetite to take risk after we've done sort of a risk assessment score. And I think you'll find that we are far more mobile in the face I of love, risk. I love that. So uh, let's talk about timeless lessons. What are some timeless lessons you've learned along the way that you'd like to share with the audience, please? Status quo is often the made the, the biggest hurdle to progress. Status uh, quo, whenever you enter into an industry, and this is, this is a perfect one, the over-the-counter industry, as you enter it, there's sort of this sentiment of this is how it's always been done. And here are the studies that are to be conducted and here's how they should be conducted. Well, today, since uh, May of May or June of last year, FDA announced an additional conditions for non-prescription use proposed rule. The reason why that's critical is they've essentially opened the door for two new technology utilities to step into the picture. And they basically said, show us how you could ensure safe patient use and appropriate self-selection by, by, by leveraging various technology utilities. That is an open door for disruption. So status quo, this is, this is, this is one of the biggest lessons learned here. Mm -hmm. Status quo is insufficient. You must think outside the box. You must take these opportunities and disrupt and follow the patient-centered value and follow the FDA-centered realm of concern in ways that have never been thought of and in ways that have never been considered. And then you'll find that you make tremendous progress. Got it. Okay. That's really, really powerful. How about, so I love the status quo. So it's almost like double question everything, question the common sense. Someone told me on the show one time, common sense is not so common. And you're saying just, I guess, the status quo, question everything, the just inherent beliefs in the system, question it. Everything. Absolutely. Yeah, love that. A little bit, not, not at risk. When With Narcan, when we talked about this rescue modality mm -hmm. for overdose, 
it was almost counterintuitive for anyone to ever imagine that we could gain the physician as an ally in this picture because the physician will immediately think i don't misprescribe yes. my patients will not misuse so forth and so on these are all legitimate pushbacks but pushing against status quo gets you to think first of all what is the cdc telling us where are these deaths happening we found out there were various low doses of opioids without ext extravagant use sometimes they would use it with other medications or with alcohol that exacerbated the effects of the drug all that to say by asking those questions, pushing those buttons, getting us to think differently, we realized that we could actually ally together, prescriber, state government, federal government, manufacturer, product, and saying, where does the patient need us? And is it worth their while to have this rescue modality in their medicine cabinet, even with a low dose, appropriately utilized opioid prescription? And that was the sweet spot that we needed to get to, but it, yeah. it required a lot of, I wouldn't say contention, debate and discussion and navigation. I love that. So, you, I mean, it's really questioning everything, going back to the very, very beginning and saying, hey, does this even make sense? That's right. Yeah. Exactly. Love that. So let's talk about timeless mistakes. What are some timeless mistakes you've learned along the way and how do you avoid them? I think I think timeless mistakes are to walk walk into an industry, leverage old practices for, for current market conditions, and I'll, I'll be specific. I think one thing that many marketers and commercial, commercial uh, agents do, including executive uh, teams is that they'll believe that the more you spend, the more you'll draw impressions, the more you'll draw buy-in, the more, and that's, that's sort of a classical way of thinking. In today's world, following those kind of old rules of play um, and committing yourself to it will lead you down a path where you spend a lot of money. You don't quite get the returns that you are looking for because it's become outdated. And in that, in that process of being outdated, you didn't catch it because you're still doing things the way they should have been done. That's been one of my biggest learnings. Um, I think whenever you're launching a product, for example, whenever you're commercializing a product, how you approach it, you have to look at the current market landscape and look for the new solutions to new problems and not try to apply old practice uh, accordingly. I think that's one of my biggest learnings. I love that. So how about, I mean, you've risen to become CEO, you've founded stuff, you've obviously an entrepreneur, an innovator, a pioneer, I could go on and on and on. But let's talk about leadership and in your experience in your mind's eye, both in the military, from personal, from professional, what makes a great leader and what are some lessons you've learned about leadership, please? I think that's a that's an interesting question because that that one um, touches, touches the depths of my heart more because you know, I'll tell you, I think before I've learned this and I'll share this with you, I always imagined a good leader is one who's empathetic, perpetually empathetic, always looking out for their people. These are not, these are not wrong things, certainly, but, but on face value, there's, there's sort of a, a misunderstanding that you have to be uh, kind and accommodating and empathetic at all times. And here's what I've learned, especially over the last probably five years. Uh, sometimes you have to call something out in people who may not be in the right place for the right reasons. And rather than accommodating their misery or accommodating their lack of performance or accommodating their mis their misconnection, it, you have to call the shots and say, I don't think you're in the right place doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. And I think that changes the game. So it's not necessarily you being empathetic in accommodation. It's you perhaps being empathetic for disrupting that person, encouraging them to find their next right step. Got it. And that includes partner vendors. It includes collaborators. It includes whether it's a contract research organization, uh, an agency of sorts, 
marketing agency, when you feel there's no fit, it takes courage and it's necessary for you to be a disruptive leader. It's unpopular at first, but it's critical for the future and health of the company. So you're basically doing what's best for the organization and removing the ego and or the personal feelings enter any other emotion you want from the equation just saying hey are we is this is this right for the business are we going in the right direction if that person's going south or east and we should be going north you let them know and either take them off of that task and or remove them completely because you want as many people aligned all going north as possible otherwise the whole thing doesn't work exactly yeah and in fact what you just described can sometimes and perhaps even often be counterintuitive to what everyone around you thinks and that's okay oh. Yeah, I love that. Okay, that that's really, really, really good. Let's talk about adversity and some obstacles. How do you handle adversity and some obstacles that you had to overcome along your way, please? I see adversity as par for the course. I think I think an operation in a circumstance without adversity indicates something's wrong. Um, I think adversity shows that you're constantly either growing, improving, you're finding the cracks in the system. So I've come to welcome it. I've become very, very familiar and very comfortable with it. Comfortable to the sense of um, it's there. I see it. I'm dealing with it. I'm confronting it uh, versus letting it disrupt my world. I think whether it's supply chain disruptions, whether it's uh, partners who have, who cancel contracts, go in separate ways, uh, whether it's uh, in any number of of disruptions, it's it's become par for the course. I see it that way. And I think it helps equip my, my team and I with, okay, what do we do next? Almost immediately. You get a disappointing piece of news. So where does this take us? And it's 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 so burdensome to stop and think any kind of derogatory reflection like, oh man, I can't believe this is happening to us. I can't believe this is occurring. Yeah, you're just there's wasting no, time. There's no ROI. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the negative trade. Yeah, it's a negative ROI is what I say. Well said. And I love that. So what you're saying is just immediately something happens learn from it, but next best decision. Your brain sure. goes to solution. Forget the problem. The milk spilled on the floor. Okay, let's learn from it so it doesn't happen again. More importantly, let's clean it up. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. next best decision. I love that. Okay, beautiful. So I guess in closing here, what's the best piece of advice that you'd like to give to the audience or your 30-year-old self? I think to, to look to the future, look to the current and look to the future. Because I think when you look to the current, you look to the future, you'll see trends that have been emerging in the past that have gotten you to the current but then where those trends take you in the future. And I think you have to begin preparing yourself today for that future. A big, a big word that comes to mind is integration. We've become a society of integrated solutions, but yet most of us operate in silos. Yeah. So pay attention to how you got where you are, you and the marketplace around you and, and, and watch where it'll take you and then begin to, to, to take action. And I think a, a key principle in that will be your ability to integrate and, and take your contextual market into, into consideration. I love that. So Fadim, the, uh, before we go, I just want to talk from an investing standpoint about the potential growth going forward. And again, I know that there's certain things you can say, can't say. I just want to know what you can and just big picture for Petros, because I see a massive, massive, massive set of opportunities, not one opportunity, but many opportunities here from a top line, bottom line, overall market cap standpoint, is this something where, can you give the audience, I guess, a sign, a, a, the TAM, the total addressable market, how big of, a, of an ocean are we swimming in here? Is this something that's going to move the needle this much, or is it something that's just too ginormous to even discuss? Again, just very broad strokes. Yeah, fair point. I'll tell you, I think today we have two markets to look at. One is the ED market, which 
still has not met its full debut and its full potential. Mm-hmm. We have a market potential of prescription ED today that could, could reach up to $2 billion uh, by the end of 2028. We have a, a prescription to over-the-counter market that today, as of 2023, is at $36 billion, and by 2033, we'll nearly double that to nearly $70 billion in potential. Wow. And so I, I, I would... I would highly suggest and recommend that people follow Petros for that reason, because not only are we playing to win in the prescription ED to over-the-counter ED space, which yeah. is significant, potentially up to $6 billion in an over-the-counter environment, mm-hmm. but our technology platform, which I'm emphasizing everybody to pay attention to, because there are several incremental milestones. So if you enter and take a position in Petros today, mm-hmm. you watch our milestones, you'll find that your returns are coming to you incrementally as we make these announcements and these leaps. Our, our deck is available on our website, petrospharma.com. Take a look. We've marked when those pl- milestones will be, and you'll find that we are a very aggressive, ambitious company to meet those milestones. We've already met many of them with m- many to come in 2024. Love so it. The yeah. market's huge. The potential's huge. We're fast moving. We're nimble. We're looking to achieve the unprecedented, both in the ED space, but also in the prescription to over-the-counter space with proprietary and potentially patent-protected technology. Absolutely love it. Well, the ticker symbol is PTPI, everybody who's watching. Fadi, thank you so much for taking the time. This is absolutely fantastic. And hopefully we'll have you on again soon. Sounds great, Adam. Great to be with you.